Well, good morning, friends, and let me add my happy Father's Day to all of the men in the room. Thank you so much for the way that you faithfully, humbly, and consistently serve your families and our church. We are grateful for you. This morning, we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Arthur kicked us off a few weeks ago talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then the next week we talked about how the Spirit-filled life is a life of freedom, where we use that freedom not to indulge our flesh, but to serve our neighbor. And then last week, Amy preached a a fantastic sermon on how the Spirit-filled life is a life of fruitfulness, where we leave behind our false self and step into our true self. Uh, It was a wonderful sermon, but I had a bit of a problem with it. Uh, And I didn't get a chance to tell Amy this during the week, so I thought I would just do it now. Is that okay with you guys? Uh, So thank you, Jude, for that that permission. You know, it it really was early on in the sermon. She told a story about fish. If you were here, you may remember this. She said that fish, you would think, would watch all of their fish friends uh, take the bait and then disappear, never to return. And she said, it's ironic that fish never learn because they spend their whole life swimming around in schools. And... Everybody laughed and groaned like that. And now my problem wasn't that the joke wasn't funny because it was funny. You know what my problem was? It's a dad joke. That's right. (laughs) Is last week Father's Day? No, this week is Father's Day. And I had planned on telling a dad's joke today. And now I feel like I can't. Uh, I I feel betrayed, honestly. And I was by a member of my own staff. And I... I just, I, I just searched the scriptures to find out if anyone else in the history of salvation had ever experienced anything quite so betraying. And I, uh, I, I read the story of Noah and I realized he probably felt this way when he realized he had a cheetah on board. <laughs> I have more, but I'll save them for the lobby. Just uh, let's talk about the Holy Spirit, shall we? I want to start with a quote from a pastor named A.W. Tozier. He wrote one of my favorite books. It's called The Pursuit of God. Some of you have read this book. He wrote in the 1940s, and he said this about the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. That is a bold claim, isn't it? He's saying that in the early church, everything depended on the Spirit, but in the church of his day, the 40s and 50s, and I would say it probably hasn't changed too much since then, that we're far more likely to rely on ourselves than we are to rely on the Spirit. And you know, what's true for churches collectively is also true for Christians individually, isn't it? Many of us, myself included, hear me on that, myself included, have so much room to grow in the way we recognize and rely on the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And that is what we're talking about in this series that we're calling Constant Feasting, the Spirit-Filled Life. We're soaking in this wonderful teaching in Galatians 5 and 6 about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we're imagining what would it be like if we actually lived all of our lives in conscious enjoyment of the presence of the Spirit, relying more fully on His guidance and His power. Today, we're going to see that the Spirit-filled life is a life of humility, and that the humility that the Spirit gives us radically changes the way we relate to others. So we're going to be looking at Galatians 5 and 6, the very end of chapter 5 and the beginning of 6. I'm going to begin reading at Galatians 5, verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Let us not become conceited. 
provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. May God bless the reading of his word. One thing I've found to be true over the years is that how we think, to a great extent, determines how we act. If you want to know what someone is thinking, you don't always want to listen to what they say, but you can always watch what they do, and their actions will reveal their thoughts. And since today's Father's Day, I thought I would use an example from my own father. I'm going to tell you about uh, something that he did when I was a kid, and we're going to explore together what it was that that, what that reveals about how he thinks. Does that make sense? Okay, so my dad loved to work in the yard when I was growing up. And we lived on a corner lot with lots of cars coming by. And our yard was beautiful. And he really loved working in the yard. And he always wore this same outfit when he worked in the yard. And I'll describe it to you. Remember, lots of cars going by. That's important to this story. Uh, He he wore, we'll start from the bottom, tennis shoes, uh, those knee-high tube socks that were popular in the 70s. You remember those with the, the rings, the yellow or red rings? Bermuda shorts a t-shirt, and to top it off, a sombrero. Uh, Now, when you hear me say sombrero, you might think, oh, he probably is exaggerating. He just means a little straw hat. No, I literally, he drove to San Antonio, went to the market, and bought a sombrero that was as wide as his shoulders and wore it every time he worked in the yard. So, what does that action say about how he thinks? Function over form, right? How something works is more important than what people think about it. Did my dad care that most people uh, in the 70s uh, in Austin didn't wear sombreros when they were working in the yard? Irrelevant, right? It kept the sun off of him, and that's all he cared about. Did he care about the scars it would leave on his children? (laughs) Apparently not. All right, you get the point, don't you? How we think determines how we act. By the way, I chose that example just to have a little fun at my dad's expense, but I also could have talked about some other things that my dad thinks that have impacted the way he has acted. For example, it's more important to serve somebody else than it is to be served. The best gift you can give your family is leading them to Jesus. Dad, I know you're watching. Happy Father's Day. Love you. Thank you. All right, well, this morning, I want to talk about a specific application of this truth that how we think uh, determines how we act. And and, and what I want to uh, hone in on is that how we think about ourselves, to a great extent, determines how we act toward others. The way we view ourselves impacts the way we treat others. For example, if we think we are the center of the universe, if we think everything revolves around us, how will we act toward others? Entitled. Entitled, because uh, uh, the world revolves around us and we'll use other people as tools to get what we want because, after all, it is all about us. On the other extreme, though, how will we treat others if we think that we're worthless, if we think we have no value? Well, we will allow others to walk all over us because, after all, we probably deserve it. You see how that works, this linkage? Well, that important, that uh, idea is important to understanding today's text. When, when you first read it, you might think this just feels like a, a random assortment of different 
commands to obey. But when you peel back the layers, you find out that what this passage really is about is about letting the Spirit change the way we think about ourselves. And when we let him change the way we think about ourselves, it has an impact on the way we act toward others. Remember, we talk about this often. Spiritual transformation always comes from the inside out. Romans 12 says, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. There's a paraphrase that says, by letting the Spirit change the way you think. I love that. And in this passage, Paul says one of the specific ways the Spirit changes the way we think is that he takes us from vanity to humility. He says there are two ways to to view yourselves, basically, vanity and humility. We'll start with vanity. Check out verse 26. Paul starts, let us not become conceited. And, And the word that the NIV translates conceited here is made up of two smaller words. One means vain and the other means glory. Uh, if you uh, grew up in church here in the King James version of this, you may remember the word vainglory, where they just put those two words together. The idea here is that you think too highly of yourself. You have an unrealistic view of who you are. And not only do you think too highly of yourself, it's very important to you that everyone else shares that same opinion of you. Uh, you know, I almost used the word conceitedness here because we use it more often, but I really like vanity. And the reason I went with vanity is because of the double meaning of vanity. Vanity ha- has at least two senses of meaning. The first is that you think too highly of yourself, like the song, You're So Vain. You remember that song? But the other meaning of vanity or vain is that it's, it's worthless or pointless. Like, hey, I expended all of that effort in vain. And when it comes to the kind of conceitedness or vainglory that Paul is talking about here, both meanings apply. Someone who's filled with this vainglory is obsessed with themselves, and that obsession is unfounded. It's in vain. Look at what Paul says about this kind of attitude in verse 3. He says, if anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Vanity is self-deception. It's ignoring the hard truth about who we are and replacing it with a fantasy that makes us feel better. And Paul wants us to see that the Spirit helps us move from vanity, where we see ourselves as we wish we were, to humility, where we see ourselves as we actually are. And who are we actually? Broken, sinful people, dearly loved by our Heavenly Father. As we go through the passage, we're going to see that Paul is consistently calling us to humility, the spirit-filled view of ourself. In in verse 1 of chapter 6, he reminds us that it's not just other people who are vulnerable to temptation. He says, we're vulnerable too, so we need to watch ourselves. In verse 4, he says, we need to test our own actions and not just focus on the action of others. And then in verse 5, he says, we need to worry about taking care of our own responsibilities rather than just pointing out where others are failing. Paul's inviting us to let the Spirit transform us from the inside out. He's saying, look, on your own, you're vain. You're prone to deceiving yourself. But when you let the Spirit take control, he changes things. He gives you the gift of humility. He helps you realize that you're more broken and sinful than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you could have ever believed. He reminds us that Jesus has rescued us from this life of vanity where we try to pretend that we're the king and he's brought us into this life of humility where we rejoice that Jesus is the king, our good and wise and loving king. He takes us from this world of of vanity where we try to find our value in our talents, in our reputation, in our Instagram followers, 
And he rescues us into the kingdom of humility where we find our true value in the fact that we are loved, like we just sang about a minute ago, loved by our Father. From vanity to humility. And in the rest of the passage, we're going to see that this inner shift in mindset results in an outer shift in action. This new way of thinking about ourselves leads to a radically different way of acting toward others. And we're going to look at two specific outer shifts that happen as a result of this spirit-fueled change in the way we think. First of all, it takes us from competition to compassion. In our natural self-centered state, we see life as a competition. Look again at Galatians 5.26. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. He says, when we're living in vanity, the way that we relate to others tends to fall into two categories, provoking and envying. And it all has to do with how we feel about ourselves in relation to the other person. If we feel superior to someone, we will provoke them. And and the word that's translated provoke here has the idea of challenging someone to a contest. In other words, we're so sure of our superiority over them that we feel like we need to prove it to them. And on the other hand, if we feel inferior to them, we envy them. They're winning, we're losing, we want what they have. In either case, life is a competition. I love the way commentator John Stott puts this. He says, our attitude is either I'm better than you and I'll prove it, or you're better than me and I resent it. Either way, we see life as a competition that we must win in order to feel good about ourselves. But the Spirit calls us to a different kind of life. He moves us from competition to compassion. In verse 4, he says, don't compare yourself to others. Instead, look at what he says in verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And remember, Amy told us last week, the law of Christ, the new command that Jesus gave us was love one another. So instead of trying to prove ourselves by competing with others, In the spirit-filled life, we find our true selves by serving others, by having compassion on them. In In competition, we try to load others down so that they fail and we thrive. But in compassion, we try to lift others up so that they thrive. In competition, if you win, I lose. But in compassion, if you win, I win. You see the difference? I think marriage is a a huge opportunity to practice this kind of humility that leads to compassion. Let's be honest, it is so easy to fall into the trap of comparison in marriage, isn't it? Or even sometimes on our worst days, competition. We start looking at the, the scorecard, the tally, who's doing more, who cooked less, who took the kids last, and then we can kind of spin in our minds and, and think, you know, when is my spouse gonna start carrying their weight? When are they going to be more like me? I mean, after all, we can, we can all agree that I'm pretty much God's gift to marriage and they should be thanking their lucky stars that they get to spend time in my presence. When are they going to start carrying their weight? It reminds me of a story I heard from Larry one time, and I share this story every time that I do premarital counseling. He told me the story that early in his marriage to Jalita, they were uh, talking with a couple who had been married for many decades, and they asked them what the secret to a happy marriage was, and the couple said this, He said, everybody says marriage is 50-50. You pull your weight and you pull your weight. He said, everybody's wrong. In a healthy Christian marriage, it's not 50-50. It's 100-100. 
Each partner gives 100%, expecting nothing in return. And of course the reality is that none of us can give 100% all the time because we're weak and broken, but that's the beauty of marriage. When I'm weak, my spouse picks up my slack. When they're weak, I pick up their slack as we give ourselves not in competition, but in compassion. Freely given and freely received. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that challenging in real life? It is. You know, you can't approach marriage or life that way without humility. You just can't do it. If you think you're better than someone else, it is very, very difficult to have compassion on them, to have true compassion on them. This kind of compassion where we carry each other's burdens just doesn't exist with vanity. Look, look at the way the New Living Translation paraphrases verse three. It says, if you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. And I love how direct this last sentence is. You're not that important. <laughs> Thanks for the reality check, Paul. This reminds me of something my grandmother used to say whenever she thought I was acting prideful or presumptuous, she would say, John, you're getting too big for your britches. Anybody else ever heard that phrase, too big for your britches? I don't know anyone who calls pants britches anymore, but I really do love the phrase. She, she, she was saying, John, you're getting arrogant, be careful. You're thinking too highly of yourself. And then sometimes she'd use another phrase that I didn't like as much, you're cruising for a bruising. Anybody heard that one? The Bible says it this way, pride goeth before a fall. Sometimes the spirit has to tell us, you're getting too big for your britches. Sometimes the spirit needs to remind us that the only way we're even breathing, the only way we're even sitting here is because of the sustaining power of God, because of the grace of Christ. The only thing we truly deserve is punishment for our sins, but Jesus took our place on the cross and now we have new life in him. The Spirit reminds us of the beautiful truth in Psalm 103, so appropriate for Father's Day, that says, our Father is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Church, aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful for the compassion of our Heavenly Father? And he reminds us, the Spirit does, that it's our joy and privilege to serve others with this same compassion that God has shown to us. Jesus told a story one time that I think is a great example of this. He said a man was uh, traveling on a dangerous road and a bunch of thieves jumped him, beat him up, stole his money and left him for dead. And two religious guys came by and you would think they would help, but, but they saw life as competition. And they knew that uh, in their minds, stopping to help this man uh, was beneath them. They were too important, uh, like verse three said. It would have slowed them down, so they walked on by. But soon, a Samaritan walked by. And the Samaritan had every reason in the world to ignore this man. I mean, after all, Jews, and the man who was, uh, was laying on the side of the road was a Jew, Jews hated Samaritans. It would have been so easy for the Samaritan to see life as a competition and say, hey, he got what he deserved. But instead, he had compassion on the man. He interrupted his schedule. He got up close and personal. He touched him. He bound up his wounds. He, he put him on his own donkey and took him to an inn and he paid for it out of his own pocket. A beautiful picture of compassion. As the Spirit fills us, he transforms us and we begin to move from seeing life as a competition to seeing it as an opportunity to share the compassion we have received with all those around us. 
There's a second shift that this spirit-fueled journey from vanity to humility helps us take. When the spirit fills us with humility, we move from cancellation to restoration. Over the last few words, the word cancel has taken on a new meaning in our culture, hasn't it? It's not a new term, but the way that people use it is new. The idea is if someone says something wrong or does something wrong, they get canceled. In other words, because of whatever they said or, said or did, we're canceling our relationship with them. Now hear me clearly on this. The things we say and do matter. Words and actions do have consequences. And when a public figure says or does something that harms others, there must be accountability. But friends, in the church, the spirit points us not to cancellation. The spirit points us to restoration. Look at Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should cancel that person judgmentally. No. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Oh, there is so much goodness in this verse. First of all, I love what it implies. The fact that Paul is even talking about this topic means he recognizes that people in the church are going to sin. Did he catch that? The church isn't a museum for spiritually perfect people. The church is a hospital for spiritually sick people like you and like me. Yes, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Spirit empowers us to actually live differently. As we follow Jesus, we really do come to look more and more like Him. But even after we're filled by the Holy Spirit, even after we're doing our best to walk in step with the Spirit, still we are broken, still we are going to sin. The Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ, but that project, the completion date of that project is not until we're in heaven together with Jesus. Paul says, even in the church, don't miss this, even in the church, people are going to hurt you. People are going to frustrate you. People are going to annoy you. And the question is, what do you do about it? Do you write the person off? Do you say, you're dead to me? As tempting as that is, friends, as much as our flesh wants to do that, no, those of us who live by the Spirit don't cancel. Instead, we restore the word that's translated restore here is, is a medical term that's used for setting a broken bone. Isn't that a great image? Paul says when you see someone who's hurt, don't cancel them, help them. Help them put things back the way they're supposed to be. Get the arm back in alignment so that the process of healing can begin. And he says, don't do it harshly. Don't do it judgmentally. Do it the way you would set a broken arm. How would you set a broken arm? If it's my arm, I hope it's gently. <laughs> don't add more pain to the brokenness. Friends, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if we actually treated each other this way? What if we weren't surprised and offended when others messed up, but instead we said, this is our chance. This is our moment. This is our opportunity to bring the forgiveness and healing of Jesus to someone who needs it. What if we saw ourselves not as judges, but instead as doctors? What if we saw ourselves as, as paramedics, always on the lookout for broken people, for hurting people, always ready to gently restore them by grace? It's just one more reminder that humility is the starting point of this way of treating others. Paul says, watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. In other words, 
Come down off your high horse for a minute. Don't look down on the person who sinned as if you are perfect, as if you could never fall into that same trap. Remember, you're vulnerable. You're broken. Remember that you've been restored in the past and you're gonna need to be restored again in the future. He says, don't be like the elementary school student who's so busy telling the teacher that the other kids aren't doing their assignment that they don't do their own assignment. As verse five reminds us, we have our own responsibilities to carry too, don't we? Last week I read uh, about a poll that asked people in our country who have no faith background, what's the number one reason that causes them to doubt Christianity? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? You know what the number one response was? The problem of suffering and evil in the world? That's a big problem, but no, not number one. The exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Nope. Questions about how to reconcile science and faith? Nope. The number one reason why people who are not following Jesus said they doubt the validity of Christianity is the hypocrisy of religious people. Friends, I hope that breaks your heart like it breaks mine. The number one reason that people outside of the church doubt the validity of the church is Christians who spend all their time talking about how evil and broken everybody outside the church is when everybody knows, everybody knows that they're broken too. Friends, Maybe it's time for us to stop worrying so much about the speck in our brother's eye and start focusing on the log in our own eye. Friends, we are broken sinners desperately in need of grace. I am a broken sinner desperately in need of Christ's grace and your grace. You are a broken sinner desperately in need of Christ's grace and one another's grace. The world doesn't need to see a church bragging about how right we are and how wrong they are, do they? The world doesn't need to see a church that's obsessed with cancellation. The world needs to see a church that's obsessed, that's fanatical about restoration. A church that focuses on gently restoring one another, helping each other get back on the right path, remembering that Jesus has forgiven us of so much and he's given us the privilege of extending that same restoration to others. There's another story Jesus told that I think is the perfect illustration of this point. In this story in Luke 15, a a man had two sons and the younger son said to his dad, give me my share of the inheritance, I'm out of here. And he took the money, he left and he squandered it all. And eventually when he ran out of money and he came to his senses, he, he humbled himself and came home to beg for mercy and he asked his father to let him be one of his servants. And did his father cancel him? Did his father say, you know, I used to have two sons, but I only have one now? No, friends, the father restored him. He said, bring the best robe and put him on it. Put it on him. Kill the fatted calf. Let's have a feast. My son was dead and he is alive again. Oh, church family, may that be a picture of what happens here at VRBC. May it be so by the grace of Christ. May we leave behind this fatal poison of cancellation and take up the healing balm of restoration. May we be a people who are all about grace, all about the grace of Christ received and extended to one another, encouraging each other and restoring each other whenever we fall. As we close, uh, I wanna give you some, some bad news and some good news. Which do you want first, bad or good? Good, I was gonna say bad first anyway, so. 
Bad, bad news first, bad news first. Living this way is hard. And to make it worse, each one of us is responsible for doing it. Verse five says it clearly. It says, each one must carry his own load. Yes, we help bear each other's burdens, but ultimately each of us is responsible to God. Friends, there will be a day when every single one of us stands before God. And the Bible tells us we will have to give an account for ourselves. What we've done, what we haven't done, what we've said, what we haven't said. I don't know about you, but that makes me very uncomfortable because I know I can't carry that. None of us can, it's too heavy. But here's the good news, and the good news is really, really good. While you are trying your best to carry your own load, God is carrying you. Isaiah 40 says that God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. God is carrying you. And later in Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus, Isaiah said, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. He carried it and by his wounds we are healed Friends, we don't have to carry our sin. We don't have to carry our failures. We don't have to carry our brokenness because on the cross, Jesus carried all of it. All of it. I just want to say, our Lord Jesus is the perfect example of everything we've talked about today. When Jesus saw us, he didn't approach life as a competition. No, he looked at us through eyes of compassion. He could have highlighted the gap between us, couldn't he? He could have declared himself the winner and us the loser, but instead he was moved with compassion. And just like the Good Samaritan, he did not pass us by. He came to us, he bandaged our wounds, he carried us to a safe place and said, I will cover the cost. I will pay for everything. When Jesus saw our sins, he, when he saw all the ways we had messed up, he could have canceled his relationship with us, couldn't he? He could have canceled us, but friends, he did not. He restored us. He put us back on the right path. He brought us back home again. And just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, our heavenly father welcomed us home and said, my son, my daughter is alive again. And now by this amazing grace, friends, we have been set free by the spirit to move away from a life filled with vanity and moved into a life of spirit-fueled humanity to, to humility, to leave behind comparison and competition and to extend the same compassion we've received from Jesus to all those around us, to leave behind the spirit of cancellation and to take up a spirit of restoration, spreading the healing love of Jesus to our families, to our church, and to our world. May it be so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. As we bow together this morning, I just want to invite you to take a moment to, uh, to reflect. I'm going to give you a couple of prompts of things to think and, and pray about. And then in a moment, we'll, uh, we'll sing a song that's a prayer asking the Spirit to move in us. And so here, here's what I want to do. If you are uh, a follower of Jesus, what I want you to do is to ask the Spirit to, to bring to your mind someone in your life 
that you have a, a tendency uh, to, or a temptation to compare yourself with or maybe to, to cancel. I want you to ask the Spirit to bring that person to your mind. Maybe someone who frustrates you, maybe someone at work or at home or in your neighborhood, someone who you just have a hard time moving past this competition, this cancellation. And with that person in your mind, I want you to just pray with me. Holy Spirit, thank you that Jesus had compassion on me. Please help me in the spirit of humility to have compassion on this person this week. This person who I have the, the, the temptation to cancel, Spirit, help me to move from cancellation to restoration. Just as you have restored me, give me the humility to work toward peace and restoration with this person. And if you're here today and, and you say, this sounds like a, a, a great idea, but I don't, even know, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know where to begin because I haven't started a life with Jesus. My, my invitation to you is simple. It's to open your heart and your life to the one who has compassion on you and desires to restore you. You can pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you haven't canceled me. Thank you that through the cross, you have borne the weight of my sin and you desire to restore me. I submit myself to you. I give my life to you. And Lord Jesus, we pray for each person in this room, wherever they find themselves in their spirit, spiritual journey, we pray that today would be a day where the Spirit fills them more fully and we live in the compassion of Christ, in whose name we pray together. Amen.